Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. I love you for this, uh, just all that you've done for me. And I, I, I just I thank you that you love us. Uh, we don't deserve it. We're unworthy of your love, yet you love us. Father, I pray that you'll be with us today as we learn about other ways that we can connect to you. Disciplines that we can add into our lives uh, that grow deeper intimacy with you, our Father. I pray you'll bless this time, uh, encourage us, and uh, maybe we learn something new in your name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing is just a little bit of a definition. What is a spiritual discipline? Dr. Don Whitney says that the spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. That's what we're going to unpack um, this morning, or this evening, rather. So there are inward disciplines and outward disciplines. The first, uh, these are all listed as Richard Foster. If you've read his book, Spiritual Disciplines, has anyone read that? Uh, well, then this is kind of a nice intro if you're interested to kind of un- unpack these a little bit more. So the first inward discipline is meditation, and we'll unpack that. Uh, the next one is prayer, and then fasting, and then studying slash journaling. So you can kind of see how... Some of these fit into the instincts that we talked about last week. So we'll we'll take each one and expound upon it. So meditation is first and foremost a slowing down from and silencing of the chaos and noise around us. How many of you usually find in your daily life that you can have one hour of quiet time by yourself without noise around you? You can do that? Yeah. The parents are like, no. Yeah, you could, you could, right? But is it normative to have that? Or is it usually there's some type of noise on? Right? I, I know Hillary's great grandmother, she, uh, she passed a couple of years ago, but she was 95 or 96, and every night she would listen to the radio to go to bed. She, she couldn't sleep unless she was listening to something. I mean, she would go to bed at 5 p.m. So, you know, it was, it was difficult. It had to drown out all those other sounds. But the reality is, is that meditation is difficult because we have so much noise around us. Always we have noise. Meditation is a lingering focus and is important to knowing. So we've been talking about knowing and being known. That's why I thought this would be an important one to kind of bring uh, this, this lesson today. But it's important, if I'm going to get to know you, I need to slow down and connect with you. See, I have a little bit of an ADD, and so like I'll have conversations with people, my phone goes off, I get distracted, right? We have to try and eliminate distractions so that we can focus on one another, so we can focus on God in this particular aspect. Meditation is the lingering focus. I'm focusing my mind and my thoughts and my conversation and my reading towards the Lord, the biblical basis, I don't know if anyone brought their Bibles. We're going to do some sword drills today. So biblical basis for meditation. Not each, not each of these have this, this biblical basis, but I think it's important that we see different scriptural patterns uh, in here. So Genesis twenty four sixty three. Who wants to do that one? It's really easy. It's the beginning. All right, Mozella. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Okay, he meditated. Psalm 1, verse 2. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. Psalm 63, 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Psalm 119, 148. There we go, yep. Psalm 119, verse 148. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's close. It's close. You make me lie down beside still past, still waters. Yeah. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Meditate. All right, long one. 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 8. 
Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Um, there were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The Lamb of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. First Samuel 3, 1 through 8. Okay, uh, Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. After the Lord called Samuel, <coughs> and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I, here I am, you called me. Then Eli, Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. He was sitting there trying to figure out who was calling him. But then Samuel was told to go back and ask what the Lord wanted, to sit and meditate and spend time. It was funny. Could you imagine being uh, Eli in that moment? This kid keeps coming up to you. He's like, yeah. what? You called me. <laughs> I didn't call you. Go back to bed. I, I mean, our kids do that all the time. <laughs> the Lord wasn't calling them. <laughs> and neither did the Lord. First <laughs> uh, Kings 19, 9 through 18. <coughs> There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the Lord and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Arim. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimish, uh, Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, and from Abel Melah. Uh, but man, I chose the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get the, you get the point, right? He was he was told he was told to sit and linger and wait and and meditate. Um, and, and the Lord was not in the big earthquake. The Lord was not in the big fire. He was in the whisper. And in order for us to have that meditation, that lingering, to wait for the whisper, we have to be quiet. We have to, to push the noise away. Matthew fourteen thirteen. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So he, Jesus needed to get away yeah. to get on the hillside. We talked a little bit about that last week and uh, on, on Sunday and on Wednesday about our need to get away, to, to be alone with the Lord. One of my favorite 
that I didn't put up here is uh, one of my favorite verses on meditation is when the Lord says to Joshua, take the book of the law and meditate on it day and night. And then there's a promise in it. Then your way will become prosperous. That there is this sense of if we spend time with the Lord, there's richness in it. It doesn't mean we're going to get a BMW, right? As some pastors might say. But it does mean that we have rich, intimate relationship with the Lord. So meditation is a discipline that we are continuously encouraged throughout Scripture to partake in. Uh, Foster would say Christian meditation very simply is the ability to hear God's voice and obey it. That's why we used 1 Kings as well in the, the, the First Samuel passage, that it's the ability to hear the voice of the Lord and then obey it. We're meditating on what God would have us to do, and then we do it. The next one is prayer. Now, we're going to really unpack prayer in, on Sundays, starting this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about four different areas of prayer. Supplication, intercessory prayer, um, tea, uh, thanksgiving prayer, and uh, prayer in the Spirit. So, it's going to be really interesting. This sits. We sit. You're right. Anyway, so I'll, I'll explain it on Sunday. Um, but prayer is an important part of communicating. Uh, prayer, communicating with God and making space for Him to communicate with you. It's that sense of I am going to purposely have a conversation with the Lord. Very simple. It's our communicative connection to God. A.W. Tozer says, Prayer will increase in power and reality as we repudiate all pretense and learn to be utterly honest before God as well as before men. So honesty in prayer is essential. We kind of talked about this a little bit on Sunday, uh, the importance of being honest with the Lord, of being laid bare, being known in the process of our relationship with Him. So that when we pray, it's not just simple uh, prayers of uh, of things that we could easily say, um, but it's really going deep and having a communicative connection where it's not just surface level stuff. It can be really easy in, in any of our relationships to be surface level, but in prayer, it's meant to go a little bit deeper. Uh, prayer is essentially uh, is essential in our lives because it is our primary connection to the Lord's personal voice to us in our honest words to Him. Uh, we talked about meditating. It's the ability to hear his voice, to sit and be quiet. This is our place to really utilize. Meditation and prayer can go hand in hand where we spend time communicating, listening, but also being honest. I'm not going to go too deep into prayer uh, because we're going to be talking about it for the next uh, three weeks in, in church. But uh, one of the best examples of this is the Lord's Prayer, again, which we will actually, uh, after this week of talking about specific areas of prayer, we're going to go uh, the next two weeks after that and expound upon the Lord's Prayer to kind of explain it, extrapolate out what is it that Jesus is suggesting in this prayer. Do we say just this prayer or are there, are there uh, different dynamics to what Jesus is bringing about? And I believe that there are different dynamics to what Jesus is bringing about in the midst of that prayer that we will unpack. Question. Yes. May I? Yeah, please. Well, during the prayer series, we are going to be doing the Lord's Prayer in the beginning of the service um, because of that same reason, to, to kind of refocus our minds on it. Uh, I think that we, as a denomination, moved away from the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer in some senses because it was too Catholic for many. Um, I think in another way, it, 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 it was seemingly losing its power because people were just quoting it rather than really meditating on what does it mean. And so bringing it up in specific spaces where we can spend time unpacking it, looking at it, I think are healthy. I think it is healthy to recite it. 
Um, you know, I, I think sometimes in, uh, in Christian circles when someone says, okay, I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer, they say the Lord's Prayer, but then they don't pray anything else. They feel like, oh, that's what Jesus told me to pray, so I'm done. But that's not a relational thing. <laughs> because if you unpack what Jesus is saying in the midst of that, it's a, it's a very relational prayer. Um, and so I think there's several different areas. Do we need to do it more? Yeah. Do we need to do it every week? I, I don't think so. But I know that I'm, I, I'm one person and I know other people have different opinions. You know, I know Candy's asking this question. She loves reciting the Lord's Prayer. Um, and that's why, you know, I was really excited to say when we, when we walk through prayer and we talk about the Lord's Prayer, I think we should recite it. I think we should remember it because we're going we're gonna to really pull it apart and look and see what Jesus is saying. I don't know if that answers your question, um, but okay. And I still would like for them to know her little, her little boy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, My kids know it. And, so, right, and, and you know, the thing about it is when they get older, they'll know it, and it'll, it'll maybe come back to their mind. Yeah. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's good. Yeah, I agree with that. Ed? Here a week or so ago, I went down to Q Creek where the miners uh, were flooded in. Yeah. And uh, the lady did a great job of sharing the story. And even would bring scripture into it and uh, That's good. hope like that. But she said one... I think they were down in four days, but one of the days, things was tough. I mean, the water was coming up. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume most of them were, were Catholic mm -hmm. from the different little things I heard. But they said, she said to one said to the group, we need to pray. So they held hands, and they said the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. And when they come to that part, uh, let's see, our Father in heaven, come in my kingdom, come in my Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. And there was a bucket that floated up. Huh. And they opened it up, and there was a sandwich, can of pop, I don't know. Uh, wow. And just in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, prayer in all its forms is powerful. Yeah. It's connection. It's relationship. Um, so, yeah, thank you. It's good. Another, another discipline of an inward discipline, so we talked about meditating and prayer is fasting. Foster would say throughout scripture, fasting refers to abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. And then I added today, I believe it can be fasting from other things we see as primary sustainers. So food in the time that we see in scripture, Old and New Testament, was a primary sustainer. Uh, it's what they, they, they felt like they fed off of life. I mean, obviously they do. They receive their life. But they didn't have things like we have possessions or Facebook or movies or whatever it is that we feel like are uh, primary sustainers. Now, they shouldn't be primary sustainers, but for many people they are. Uh, so what are those things that are in our lives that, are, that we could consider as primary sustainers? Some people can't go through an entire day without looking at their phone. Or some people can't go through the entire day without looking at their email. Or, you know, whatever it is. Those things that we might not even recognize are primary sustainers in our lives. I think fasting from those things, separating from those things, could also be a helpful area and would fit in with the scriptural mandate of fasting. Um, generally, fasting is a personal discipline, but it can be a corporate one as well. Most of the time when we see Paul admonishing the churches or Jesus admonishing the disciples or other people to fast and pray, uh, it's a personal thing. You know, when the disciples come up to Jesus and they said, why couldn't we cast out these demons? He said, these demons only come out with fasting and prayer. And that was a sense of saying, go, go individually into a, a state of fasting and prayer. Because you're not ready for the, for the big leagues, boys. You're not ready yet. There's a sense of preparation. There's a sense of, of necessity of releasing something and allowing God to fill that space in your life. Uh, so when we release from food, the goal is to say, I'm letting go of something that I know sustains my body. And I'm going to replace it with the Lord. And so it's when you're fasting, the idea of your hunger pangs remind you to pray. It's like a reminder. Oh, I should eat right now. Wait, I need to be with the Lord. I need to pray. The fasting brings about that, that memory, right? That if someone lets go of their phone and they say, okay, well, man, I really need to check my email. Well, 
It's a, it's a light bulb to go pray. It's a light bulb to spend time with the Lord. And there are certain things we'll talk about on Sunday about intercession, going deep in prayer on behalf of other people or behalf of other things, um, where th- those are moments where we say, okay, I'm going to fast and pray. I'm going to ask the Lord for something specific. So for me, one of these, the first time I actually really tried to fast, I went, I went big, right? I was like, all right, I'm going to do seven days. Because we used to do 30-day famine when I was a teenager. I don't know if did any of you guys ever do. Anyway, so when I was a kid, we used to do 30-day famine, 30-hour famine all the time. 30-hour famine. Uh, but, you know, one of my mentors said, well, I said, I, I don't know if Hillary's supposed to be my wife. I don't want to make the wrong decision. You know how we get all those scary things. This was back when I was 20 years old or 19 years old. And my mentor said, well, why don't you go and fast about it? So for seven days, I prayed and I fasted about this one issue. God, give me wisdom. Give me insight. And by about day five, I, I just really sensed the Lord's peace. This is, this is your wife. But I was still called to fast two more days. So it was a really difficult thing. But fasting is, is for the purpose of, of spiritual preparation to handle something that the enemy might throw. But it's also for the purpose of seeking God's will, separating everything out, and saying, I'm going to, to let go of this. I'm going to sacrifice this so that you can fill me, so that I can spend specific time hearing what you want in this area. Now, he doesn't always, that doesn't always mean he's going to answer the question. You know, he could, I could have fasted for seven days and came up with nothing. But it was the matter of the discipline of saying, I'm going to do it. That's, that's an important piece. Fasting must center on God and remind us who sustains us. And it's not food. Uh, or other seeming sustainers. God is our sustainer. God is the one who brings sustenance. Yes? So do you think fasting, in the sense that it reminds us that God sustains us, is like the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the purpose of the Sabbath? There's definitely a correlation. I mean, if you look at the year of Jubilee, every hundred years, they were supposed to not grow Anything, right? Every, there was just this sense of letting the land rest. Wasn't it even seven years? Every seven every se- years? Yeah, every... So the hundred years... There's... Yeah, I'm trying to think. The, the <coughs> seven years... I can't remember what that one was called. I don't know if that was called Jubilee. There was... I think it, the year of Jubilee was every hundred years. So they let the entire land rest for the entire year. I think it was every 60. Every 50? I think that. Okay. After the that seven sounds... Times seven, then the next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly the, yeah. the, free, the, the exact yeah. numbers of it. But yes, I think there is, there is definitely a piece of that. Um, you know, there is that resetting. Fasting does do a reset. Um, some of it was, um, you know, in the Old Testament got skewed, as Jesus would say, that people would purposely let you know that they're fasting by putting stuff on their bodies and like be, becoming emaciated because they're like, oh, I'm so holy, I'm just, I'm fasting. And it wasn't really what it was supposed to be. Um, but does, is there a connection with it, allowing your body to rest from eating? I believe that there is. I can't, I can't take any specific scripture and tack it to that and say yes. But I think that if you look at the purpose for Jubilee and the purpose for the Sabbath, it, it, it would fit right into that. Well, last during the dust um, storm, that's what they did not do. Because they just grew the crops and they didn't let any of the rest of yeah. the ground rest. So it just caused all of us. Yeah. I'll tell another quick story. It's okay. My 50 year class reunion I went back to, and uh, they asked me to say the blessing. So I did. And in the blessing, I said, uh, in the Bible, 50 years was a year of jubilee and all deaths. If I remember right. Yeah. All deaths were forgiven. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I've made a lot of mistakes in my high school, and this is our 50 year reunion. <laughs> and we had several teachers there, and uh, they knew what I was talking about, and I said, that I'm claiming that you're Jubilee now, 50 years. <laughs> and everything will be forgiven. Well, yeah. one was Catholic, and he came up to me after, after the lunch, and he said, that might be what you believe. He said, but I haven't forgotten what you did. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's, well, that's rough. Yeah, I mean, it was so important, too. Like, they, in, in that time, slavery was, was more of an indentured servant. He says, I, don't, I owe you money. 
I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to serve you. Uh, and on the year of Jubilee, they were to release all of their indentured slaves to say, okay, your, you, your, your debt has been paid. Go. Um, you know, so if it was the, the year before Jubilee, and someone's like, oh, I'll just be your indentured servant. No, you're not getting off easy. But the sad part is, is they, if I remember right, Israel never fully leaned into the year of Jubilee the way that they were required to, ever, um, which is interesting. You know, they didn't let the land rest the way they were supposed to. They didn't let the slaves free the, the way that they were supposed to. Um, I think there might be one, one instance. I can't, I didn't take time to really look at the year of Jubilee, so sorry that my mind's not right there. But I think there's only one time in history that, in, in Israel's history, that they came close to it. Um, I can't remember exactly. I'll have to, have to look into that. Um, but fasting can bring breakthroughs in the spiritual realm that will never happen in any other way. Similar to that story of Jesus saying these demons can only come out through prayer and fasting. There's a connection with uh, spiritual battle that goes along with fasting as well. Um, you know, it's that it's, fasting is very deeply connected with intercession in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the sense of standing in the gap for and pressing into saying, for example, someone who you know is unsaved. You say, you know what, every year I'm going to take X amount of days to fast and pray and intercede for that person to come to Christ. Uh, intercede on their behalf. That, that's one of those areas of spiritual prayer as well, spiritual battle um, that, that fasting has. Fasting is both personal and corporate. It has spiritual ramifications for knowing the will of God, for the, you know, going after the enemy in certain ways. It, it has a huge component to it. Um, but fasting is not often taught or teached or, or taught on or preached on um, or encouraged. You know, I know it's something that I need to do more often in my life. Uh, and, um, you know, everybody with any instinct, fasting is going to be difficult for, you know, the, the, the person person or the studious person, right? They're, it's going to be equally difficult. But it's something that a discipline that we should be engaging in as believers. Um, studying and journaling, taking time to study the whole word or small portions of it are key to spiritual growth. Not everyone's primary instinct is going to be studying and journaling, but one we must undertake to know more of God. It's that, that studying of the Lord. Who is he? What does he say about himself? How has he revealed himself in the word? Uh, and journaling for me you know, is, is a really powerful um, tool. I don't do it every day. I don't do it every time I read the Word of God. But every time I do journal, there's something about putting prayers to paper that uh, just, I don't know, it, it's a different type of release. And when the Lord speaks to me and I need to write something down, I go and I'll, I'll journal it down. I, I have my phone along with me a lot, so I'll open up notes. I have like 300 different notes that are in my, in my uh, phone that I'm typing stuff that God is saying, or when I hear a, um, a sermon, I'll pause it and I'll type, type in what, I'm, what I was struck by. Um, but it's an important thing so we can remember. Also, journaling, when it comes to journaling, let's just forget the studying piece for a second. Journaling, when you journal prayers, one of the most powerful things about that is to go back into your journals and read the prayers that you had five years ago, two years ago, a year ago. And you'll be able to quickly see, wow, God answered that. God answered that. God answered that. God answered that. And we can tend to forget what we prayed for uh, five years ago. Do you remember what you prayed for? You know, unless, unless it was a huge catastrophic thing or a huge big blessing that you were praying for, you, it, you probably don't. But going back into journals, you can remember what God has done. Or in studying, if you're writing down what God is speaking to you, you can go back a year ago and reread what God spoke to you then and say, whoa, I forgot about that. That is important for me. Um, journaling helps assist in recalling what we've learned and what God has done in and through and for us. I notice when I go back into my, my journal entries how immature I was. I know that might shock all of you, but <laughs> I just go back and I look and see how immature it was. I say, wow, 
I I really thought that. It's like going back. So like I I don't know. You might not have. This might have no realm of connection to you at all, but um, there's this thing called Time Hop, which is, connects to all your social media that you've ever done. And it's that day of the year. It reminds you what you said 10 years ago or 12 years ago, whatever. It's like looking at my Time Hop and my Facebook from when I was in college, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was an idiot, <laughs> right? I just, I, why would I write that? You know, I, <laughs> I just don't understand myself. But it, that journaling helps to see how we've matured. That's the, the long and the short of it, is to see how we have, in fact, matured. My advice on studying, too. Now, not every pastor agrees with me on this. And that's okay if you disagree with me. Uh, but when it comes to studying, I say study wide and deeply. Uh, don't always seek out the voices that you'll know you'll, you'll agree with. Be challenged, right? What I mean by that is if you know that you don't necessarily agree with John MacArthur because he's a cessationalist, read some of his stuff anyways. If you know that someone really bothers you because they have this, this view of, you know, or you don't want to read John Calvin because you know he's going to talk about the tulip idea of total depravity, and, which is true. But all these other things that he talks about, about, um, you know, the Calvinism or Arminianism, all those different separations. If you're go read it. Be challenged. Allow your mind to grow. You might not like Martin Luther, but some of his stuff is great. I mean, his commentary on the book of Romans is just amazing. Right? But you might not want to read it because it's like, oh, it's Martin Luther. Be challenged. Now, some people you might not agree with about their view of heaven, right? But some of the things that they say might be significantly impactful to you. So my, my goal in that is to say, obviously, keep the word the word. Stay true to what God is saying. But if there are voices in the Christian world that you might not necessarily like, don't fear to be challenged by them. Because if all we do is listen to the same people that we want to listen to all the time that are going to say the same stuff that we want them to say, then we're not going to grow, we're not going to be stretched, we're not going to be challenged. You know, one of the things that always helps me is I love listening to black preachers. You know, African-American brothers of mine that I might not go to their church right now because obviously I'm a pastor here. But there's challenge, there's a facet of God that diversity brings. Listening to an Asian pastor or someone else from a different country, their perspectives are going to be different. So be challenged. Get outside of your comfort zone when it comes to studying. So those are the inward disciplines. The outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. He likes his S's for the outward disciplines. Simplicity. The Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Both the inward and the outward aspects of simplicity are essential. And what he's saying about simplicity is making life simple. Think Amish. They make their life simple. They do. There are things that are completely cut out of their life that bring simplicity to their life. Now, it's an inward choice that they have to choose to live like that without power or without plumbing or, you know, all the drastic areas up into the middle to the not so drastic areas. But there's a sense of simplicity. There's sacrifice in that process saying, I'm going to simplify my life because those things that are in our lives that are not simple can distract us from him. Being content with little is the joy of possessing nothing. Now Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, has a whole chapter based on the joy of possessing nothing. Where we can simplify our lives and still have joy. Maybe even more joy because we're not bombarded with the things that overcomplicate our lives. Because um, there are things in our lives that overcomplicate our lives. Right? I mean, technology is great, but it can also have terrible ramifications. Even the telephone in your house. If you've ever... Just think about before phones were in the house. How simple and quiet was life. You didn't have phone calls all the time. You didn't have people that randomly had your number calling you to sign you up for a vacation home or all these different things. You didn't have it. You didn't have that annoying ring. You just had your family, and if somebody wanted to come talk to you, they would send you a letter or they would knock on your door. It's a little bit more personal, right? But as we go on, things get even more overcomplicated. 
Seeking the kingdom, kingdom of God first and foremost for who he is and what he gives is vital for this discipline to flourish. It's the sense of I'm going to go after God. I don't need the kingdom of the world. I need the kingdom of God. And I want to seek first what he has, not what this stuff has. Now, this is probably the most difficult um, for me discipline to even engage in. Because simplicity, I like complexity. I like it. I thrive in complexity. Um, simplicity, I, I'm, I'm easily distracted and bored with simplicity. I need to, to have all the juices flowing and all the stuff going on. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think it's hoodwinked where the dog gets out and it's like squirrel, squirrel, right? That's, sometimes that's me. Um, but simplicity is something that we should at least try to engage in, that, that we could fast from things that overcomplicate our lives. Solitude. Teresa of Avilia, she said, settle yourself in solitude and you will come upon him in yourself. Basically what she's saying is that when we sit down and we are alone, we'll discover that God is with us. That God is there. Many times we can forget the fact that God is ever present, walking in life with us because we're surrounded by other people all the time. Rather than sitting down and saying, you know what, God, you're here. You're with me. God longs to be with us. And he longs to be with just us. It's kind of like your spouse. You want to be with just them sometimes. You don't want the kids around. You don't want people from church at your house for dinner. You don't want this or that. You want to separate out and be alone. God longs for us to be alone with him as well. Solitude is more of a state of mind than a specific place. right? I mean, sometimes when you think solitude, you might think, Where's the quietest, loneliest place I can be? But sometimes, you know, like where I find in my life, it's really difficult to find a room that Liam's not going to stumble in and scream and yell and whatever. But there's this sense of, okay, I need to just be with God for a moment. Someone's going to interrupt it. I can say, okay, get out of here. You know, but we need to find places where we can be alone and states of mind where we can just be with God. Okay, God, it's just you and me. Chaos is going around but let's do this together, kind of thing. The tool of centering prayer is helpful here. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the tool of centering prayer. Has anybody heard of centering prayer? Um, well, it can, it can have a couple of different manifestations for, I guess, a, a lack of a better, a worse, a better word. Um, but uh, anybody heard of Brendan Manning? Okay, Brendan Manning, this is his centering prayer. He's a guy that he, man, God did some crazy stuff in his life. He was a Catholic priest, and he was a drunkard. Every day, he would purposely pour extra wine on Sunday, right? So that when everyone left, he would drink, because the, 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 the priests have to drink the wine that's left over from the service. So he would purposely pour like three different cups, knowing that people aren't going to be drinking from these cups. So he'd have to finish the wine. So after church on Sunday, after Mass, he was always dead drunk, right? Always. He was stumbling into his house. It was just the way he lived his life. And God just gripped him up and caused him to really see who he was. And he had to stop pretending. And God put, took him on a crazy journey uh, that you could, if you read any of his books, you'll just say, wow, this is incredible. But in a, in a book at the end of his life, he, um, I can't remember it right now, it's in my Kindle, but he had this centering prayer where whenever he just felt like the enemy was lying about who he was, trying to draw him back into his old life, trying to manipulate him or outside forces that the enemy was using against him, he would take time and he would just sit in solitude and say, Abba, I belong to you over and over and over again to remind himself who he really was and who God really was. Abba is a word that means daddy in the, in, in the Greek. And so it's a very intimate, passionate word. Is that all this child? Is that the name? <laughs> no, this one is, um, let me see. I'll look it up because I want to make sure you guys, it's, it's a really good book that I read probably in, man, I can't even remember. It was really short. Uh, probably a two days. It's the furious longing of God. Is what it's called. The furious longing of God. And so he practiced this idea of centering prayer, which is to center us on God. Now, in, in Eastern meditation, there's another form of it. Uh, but 
Judaism came from an Eastern mentality. There's a sense there were different prayers that you would pray over and over again. The Shema, you would pray it over and over and over again. It's a centering prayer that was designed for us to, to uh, focus on God as well. And so there are scriptures that you could use as centering prayer. But what, whatever it is, is, is this focus on God and who we are. Like it could just be as simple as Christ, you died for me. I'm a sinner, but you die. Something simple that kind of just slows you down, that you can continue to pray over and over and over again until it's locked into truth for you. Because sometimes we can pray something and we don't necessarily believe it. Um, so anyways, that's, that's a, a helpful tool in the idea of solitude. Submission. In submission, we are at last free to value other people. Uh, what he means is when we surrender all, we have all to gain. Bending our knee to the will of the one who loves us best is medicine for the soul. Submission, surrendering everything to God. Now this is one of those outward disciplines I think all Christians are called to do on a regular basis. That we are to submit our will to His will. And when we can begin to see people the way God sees them rather than the way we want to see them. Or when we submit our will to see God's will, we might see different things that we might not have seen because we've been blocking them off with our own desires, without being submitted under Christ. Submission stops us from wasting time on our agenda, which won't work, and following His agenda, which does. I find in my own life, in many Christians' life, there is a frustration as we're trying to grow deeper with the Lord. We're trying to move forward. And I've seen this in my own life where I'm like, okay, I need to go this way. I need to do this. But I'm not submitting. And it becomes hard. The Christian life can be really difficult uh, for growth, to go after more, to understand more of God, to be a stronger, better Christian. Uh, many times I've found this because I'm not submitting my own agenda. I'm trying to meet God on my terms. I'm trying to grow in my faith on my terms uh, rather than his terms. So I know I'm, I'm bouncing through these pretty quickly because we got there's another set. But uh, service, another outward um, discipline. Bernard of Clairvaux said, Learn the lesson that if you are to do the work of a prophet, what you need is not the scepter to rule, but a hoe, which is to serve. And one of my favorite pastors says this, rule with the heart of a servant and serve with the heart of a king. Um, and so there's that idea of, of servanthood, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to serve one another. It should be a discipline. Now, we say, well, what does that mean, a discipline? We need to sometimes really honestly discipline ourselves to serve other people because it's not our nature to serve others. It's our nature to serve ourselves and to try and convince other people to serve us as well. It, it is a discipline that we should regularly try to add into our lives. Are we serving our spouse? Are we serving a brother or sister? Are there areas that we know, man, if I serve this person in that way, it would really minister to them. It would be a sacrifice on my part. I'd be submitting to what God is asking me to do, and it would be difficult, but how can I serve them? Um, true service. Washing, that of washing of feet. Uh, that, that that's not right, proper grammar. That washing of feet. Nope, sorry. Uh, anyway, true service is washing of feet. The washing of feet. That's what it's supposed to say. Sorry, the washing of feet. Anyways, I get distracted by that. True service. When you see that in Jesus' life, in the book of John, when he puts on the outer clothing, puts it down, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, they're offended at first because they're thinking, wait, surely there's someone who is, is lowest of the low in the house that's to do that. You're the highest. You're the master. You're not supposed to do that. But he steps down and he washes their feet. And he encourages them to wash one another's feet, to live in service, to rule with the heart of a servant and to serve with the heart of a king. Go after everything in service like a king would go after it. But when we rule, when we serve, when we live with one another, our goal is to serve one another, to bend a knee, to wash one another's feet. And this goes back to our conversation about bounded set, centered set, where we no longer see each other as competition, but we see each other as fellow travelers on the road. 
where, man, you're stumbling. I'm not going to walk away and laugh or jeer or whatever. I'm going to step down and help pick you up. I'm going to walk alongside and serve you. Uh, the, next, the next segment is corporate disciplines. If you have any questions, feel free to stop me again. Uh, confession, worship, celebration. Oh yeah, there's only three. Confession, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works, St. Augustine. Uh, he wrote a whole book on confessions and he confessed his whole life, which is kind of crazy. A guy like him, who's a leader of a church, writes a whole book confessing his life. All the stuff, even down to like teenage thoughts and actions. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, that, that was just, it's, it's a crazy read, by the way. Um, and you look at it and you say, wow, he's like a normal person. Struggled with normal things. Uh, but anyways, so confession is important. Confession to the Lord allows us to be forgiven. Remember, we talked about confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, it's First John. And, but if we don't confess, we cannot be forgiven. Uh, confession to our brothers and sisters allows us to see forgiveness. We're, we're called to confess our sins to one another. In James, we see that. In the book of 1 John, we see that. That confession is to be something that is individual, but it's also a corporate thing. Confession is also corporate. One of the most powerful things that I think has happened in recent history is uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the liberal uh, side of, of Presbyterian, but there was a, a Presbyterian meeting. I can't remember the name of the, the group. There's, there's USA and... PCA. PCA. Right, what PCA is the reform, the conservative one, yeah, right? PCA, two or three years ago, had a meeting where they had a public confession of their racism. They all got together and they publicly confessed that they had been racist and that some of their their tenants actually hindered people of color, and so they took time to corporately confess. And change and adjust. And so the black brothers that were in there in, in that meeting, they had them sit and each each individual white pastor confessed the sin of racism. I mean that's can you imagine the power of that? That's huge. That's powerful stuff. That confession can bring about such amazing grace. Um, and so confession is something that we are to to do often. When I offend, I confess. Chad, I confess that I, I said something really mean the other day, right? Whatever, I didn't, but, you know, <laughs> but there is that sense that we need, to, we need to keep our confession up to date with God and with others. Um, you know, because saying I'm sorry sometimes is not, it's not always confession, right? It's, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. But saying what we did, why we did it and saying I did that, I confess and I want to repent. I, I need your forgiveness, there's a different sense to that. Because you could say to, in the instance of the PCA meeting, they could say, we're really sorry, my African-American brothers, that you, that you were hurt. But they listed the sins of their denomination. You know, another, in our denomination, my friend now, who actually was the pastor at Salzburg, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Bob Flaherty at all, but he was the pastor at Salzburg. He actually went to... Um, a church in Alabama that uh, was part of the rallies that were going on. And Martin Luther King asked if he could use their church property. And the white pastor said no. And when the day happened, the white pastors and the elders had their shotguns on the front porch of the church to make sure that none of these African-American brothers in Christ could be on their property. Now, fast forward 20, 30 years, that church did a public confession to the black community. and said, we did this. And they had pictures. And they said, this was our church. We confess our sin against you and we repent. Um, I mean, just, you can imagine just the, the change in the heart that that took. So anyways, I could go on and on about the importance of confession. Scripture is replete with where we are to confess, how we are to confess. But it is individual and corporate. When darkness comes into light, it loses its power. Confession is bringing to light the things we like to hide in the darkness. So those things that we keep hidden in our own life or keep hidden in the past. You know, we, I've seen some, um, some fathers confess 
to their children saying, you know what, I, I forced you to hide your pain or your sickness or I never was gentle, I never loved you. I confess the way that you never felt loved or that, you know, these different things. And there's power that happens in that relationship when that confession happens from a parent to a daughter or to a, from a father to a daughter or a mother to a son. The confession and asking for repentance changes the game. Why? Because it brings light into the darkness. It's a recognition that there was something that was done that was wrong. And then there's an opportunity for forgiveness. Worship. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purpose of God. William Temple said that. I love that definition of worship. I love it. Because it, it does quicken our conscience to the holiness of God. It's like that sense of coming into the holy of holies. To feed the mind with the truth of God. As we worship, you know, we look at many of our hymns and contemporary worship songs. We're singing the truth about God. We're singing the truth of God. We're singing the truth of, of ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. Where we sing such beautiful songs that we are reminded of the beauty of God. Uh, or we, we hear such beautiful poetry or see such beautiful images to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Worship is in everything we do and say, not just in songs that we sing. We can worship God with everything. I don't know if I have that passage on or I don't. But we should worship God with everything. We should be living sacrifices, which is living worship. Um, he is the object of our worship. If we don't worship Him, we will worship something or someone. We were created to worship. You and I were created to worship. And so we will worship someone. We will worship something. Because that's we're created to do it. Final thoughts. Not all of these disciplines get us excited. Some match our instincts and others just don't. The point is to expose you to the different ways you and I can grow in our faith. Sometimes we will have to push through to get the intended result. I encourage you to, over the next month, attempt all of these disciplines, right? Over the next month, and even more if you find them. So you can see yet another way you can better connect to your Abba Father. Um, so that's my challenge. How many of you guys?